I'm Brandon Munro. I'm the CEO of Bannerman Energy. We've got the Tango Uranium Project in Namibia. It's very, very large. It's advanced. We're in a wonderful supportive jurisdiction with environmental permitting. And we've been able to attract really a truly credible team and a wonderful supportive base of shareholders. And it's a very exciting time to be operating this project as the uranium market moves into what is widely expected to really be a tremendously exciting bull market run. Brandon, good to see you. I haven't seen you since uh, August, certainly not in this guise. Uh, and wanted to catch up because obviously things are moving along with the um, project. Uh, but it, you kind of give us a clue there. It's, it's, it's an exciting market. It's a fairly erratic market. I mean, last time we talked, you were at 16 cents, but you've been as high as 40, back down to 22. What's going on in the market? Well, it has been very volatile. Look, I mean, the first thing to understand is that the fundamentals have been strong for some time. And between last August, when we last spoke and now, they've only got stronger. We've come out of COP26 with a large number of really important markers that have made these fundamentals stronger. Um, we can come back to talk about those, but the volatility in the meantime has been driven by the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust and its effect on the market, its effect on generalist investor interest in the sector. And uh, that's flowed through to equities. And as you say, in the last couple of weeks, we've had a lot of general blowback from the market uh, at large. You know, you know, as you say, 16 cents back in August, if you'd said to me, would you like to be 22 and a half today, 40% return? I mean, I'd be greedy not to say, yeah, but uh, it's been up to 40 and back down to that. And now we're in a position where we'll start rebuilding momentum from here. So you're putting that just to market conditions, uh, COP26, but coming into the marketplace, it's nothing to do with you. Because if I read some newsletter uh, writers, and if they are to be believed, Africa is not a place for uranium companies. Do you agree with that? Oh, look, that's just a, an unfortunately a very, a very misunderstood perception, probably from people who have never been to Namibia. Uh, first of all, Africa is a very big place, more than 50 countries, enormously diverse, and Namibia, the guidebooks have called it Africa for beginners, Africa light. And I can tell you, because I lived there for more than five years, I had my family there. We grew up babies there. We had two under two. And that was a delightful environment to bring up small, tiny, vulnerable children. And in the whole time we were there, we travelled all over the country. We never even had our car broken into. So Namibia just happens to be... a a wonderful, safe, secure, stable, supportive corner of Africa. And you can't take a big continent like that and apply the worst of what you've heard in certain parts of it to a country like Namibia. And then in terms of where you'd want to develop a uranium asset, Namibia is the place, the place for developing. And the number of assets that have been developed in the last 15 years would bear that out with Langer Heinrich and the Husab uranium mine being two of less than a handful of projects developed by the Western world in that time since the last boom when prices of uh, $136 couldn't even bring on more developments. Namibia's been exporting since I was in nappies. Uh, it's been consistently exporting uranium during that time, got all of the jurisdiction there, deep water port, a government who understands it, a government who's got the capability to regulate it, a workforce that is indigenous and has been brought up by uh, the Rossing uranium mine initially run by Rio Tinto. The majors have been there. The list goes on and on and on. 
as to why Namibia is a superior place to not only invest in, but develop. And finally, uh, compared to, let's say, first world jurisdictions, there's a level of development stability that you have in Namibia that you just don't get in a Canada or an Australia. And that stability relates to government, community support and political support for uranium in particular, but also the environmental stability. It's a pragmatic environmental situation where there is a development agenda. And as long as companies do it the right way and commit to top world-class environmental standards, they don't get interfered with in the way that we see only too often in the first world, particularly in this sector. So I reject the idea that Namibia is, first of all, painted with the same brush as Africa as an entire continent, and secondly, that in some way it's any less desirable as to an investor than Canada or Australia or the US. Look, I, look, I, I take what you say there, like, uh, I, and I think it's a case of, you know, we need all of the above, and I think, you know, different companies employing news editors to steal someone else's lunches is not not the way forward certainly not that, that I want to see you know there's some fantastic projects in North America some fantastic projects in, in Africa we need all of the above and we, you know but they all need the price to be at a certain level to actually um, you know ensure the economics around this one so uh, you know one I want to say that um, Let's 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 talk about the um, fundamentals though, because again, there's been a little bit of confusion in the market this week. Some 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 comments made on on Twitter and a a, a piece written, um, which perhaps was a little bit inaccurate in places. And I, I just want to make sure that people, new people looking into this space, may feel that it's a it's 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 a little bit erratic and, and therefore be put off by it, but. Just go through the market fundamentals as you see them at, uh, in terms of supply and demand. Sure, I'd love to. And I'll use slightly round numbers to make it easier for folks. So basically what is consumed in nuclear reactors around the world today, so that's both the ongoing consumption of a reactor delivering power and also the first loads for new reactors as they get closer to commissioning and power production, is roughly 175 million pounds of U308 in its equivalent uh, nuclear fuel forms. What is produced around the world today on a baseline level is 135 million pounds. And then there is about 25 million pounds of secondary supply. And that includes recycled uranium that's retrieved from spent nuclear fuel. It includes uh, for example, what's produced by a process called underfeeding, um, and it includes some limited uh, government reduction supplies of secondary um, material. So that means that there's a gap, you know, and it's quite a significant gap at the moment, which is being fed as we stand by the reduction of commercial inventories that's held by utilities. Um, and the flip side of that secondary supply or that inventory reduction is that we've now, just in the last year, seen the, in, uh, the impact of secondary buying or secondary demand from physical investment funds. And that's the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust that we discussed before, but also Yellow Cake, also the newly announced ANU Energy, which is a Kazakh-based physical investment fund. And uh, there's also a number of ways in which hedge funds and other high net worth uh, family office investors can invest directly into uranium. And we've seen that as well. Okay. So 
bottom line is market thematics still hold strong and there'll be kind of steady steady uh, growth in that delta moving forward, obviously with the impact of um, on, on supply uh, over the past 18 months or so with, with, with COVID and, and other factors. Um, the story is still strong. So people looking at from in, looking into this from outside, if not perhaps invested in uranium yet, you feel that the the momentum is still there, and there's no no reason to be concerned. Oh, absolutely. The the momentum's absolutely there. Um, bear in mind that those commercial inventories can't be drawn down indefinitely. They were developed for precisely this situation. There's a deficit, there's rising prices, you've got competitive buying by a financial investor in the form of Sput and Yellowcake. And that's why these inventories were built. And the utilities, they want to maintain that buffer going forward. So it might suit them to draw down at the moment when it's hard to get business done because of COVID, but they're going to at some point want to replenish those inventories in addition to buying what they burn. So that's buying the 175 million pounds that I talked about before. And there's a solid demand picture on top of that. Uh, even if you go with the World Nuclear Association's reference case, which is business as usual, assuming that there's none of the huge improvements in public sentiment and political sentiment that we've seen in the last year or so, even that business as usual case still has nuclear growing at a couple of percent per annum at a time when uranium supply is going to deplete significantly by the end of this decade. Of the top 10 uranium mines around the world, four of them will have closed or run out of ore by the 2030. So there's both of those factors that are really contributing at the moment. And that's why I say it's an exciting time for a very late stage advanced developer like Bannerman to be getting ready to deliver into that. Okay, well, let's let's get into your your project. Because thanks for that kind of market background. If anyone wants to know more about the market background and strong fundamentals, come and join our weekly energy show at Crux Investor. You can download the app. Uh, onto your phone. Um, look, a Tango 8 DFS, progressing to plan. So wh- where are you at? In fact, why did you do it? Because you originally had a massive project, right? And people, the market looking at you going, this project is vast. It requires, you know, vast sums of money to actually get this thing up and running. You said, I'm listening to that. A Tango 8 uh, is the short-term solution. Is it, is that a fair representation of the of the thinking? Yeah, that's that's a good summary. I might use that. Thanks, Matt. But <laughs> that's all, that's right. yours. We, but but tell, tell us about what you know what you've been doing there, please. Yeah. So um, for people who don't know the Bannerman story, uh, we started in two thousand six. Started resource drilling all the way back then. Environmental baseline studies from two thousand and eight, etc. And that was geared towards the original Tango project, seven point two million pounds per annum. We took that all the way through to DFS in 2015. Now, that's enough to power 17 to 18 gigawatt scale nuclear reactors. And we started to learn that that's just too big to come into um, without a significant offtake partner, at least. So we wanted to preserve our independence in the marketplace when it comes to selling our product. And we're also being told by the equity market, as you point out, that you need to be able to walk before you can run. And I think servicing 17 uh, gigawatt scale reactors isn't running. That's sort of sprinting hurdles. And that was just, in hindsight, a bit too ambitious for us. Big CapEx, 
appropriate for the size, but very big compared to our market cap at the time. So all of those factors led us towards looking at reducing the scale and maintaining the scalability so that we could start small. In this case, it's 3.5 million pounds per annum. And then if the market condition's right, we can scale up. And I might add that I say small, but that's still very large. That's still amongst the largest of the prospective developers in the sector. And that's still enough to service seven to eight conventional nuclear reactors. So that is nation-sized in terms of nuclear fleets. And uh, as you've seen, the economics work really well. It's an improvement on the large scale. And that's largely because we've got a lower strip ratio. The, the all body starts at surface uh, and it's still a large mine. It's still 15 years production. It's still more than 50 million pounds that's extracted with all of the potential to go deeper beyond that initial 15 year mine life as we start to work our way into a global resource of more than 200 million pounds plus satellite deposits that are within trucking distance. So that's a snapshot of the thinking. And so far, as you say, we're just about completing the DFS. That's all going well. Um, we've got Wood who are running it, who'll be signing it off. Uh, we've got a really good technical steering committee, which includes the chap who built the largest uranium mine in Africa with and who's been involved in numerous different projects in Namibia. Um, we've got the former managing director of the Rossing Uranium Mine down the road, who's uh, on our board and our technical steering committee. And uh, we feel like we've really got the right people in the right places to control that budget, control that time frame, and obviously achieve the outcomes that we're after. So hang on, so you, you've got the guys um, from Rossing, um, obviously, You've talked about Namibia, you know, having produced uranium since you were in diapers, um, with Langer Heinrich and, 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 and Rossing, um, and, you know, there are lots of other uranium com com companies in country. But did they, were those companies making money? Because, you know, again, the other thing that's thrown at you guys a lot in Namibia is, well, it's low grade. It's, it's low grade. It doesn't have the grades we do in, say, Canada and the Athabasca Basin. So why would you invest in companies in Namibia? Well, look, there's, there's always two aspects to low grade. Um, you can't just look at grade in isolation of all of the other modifying factors. Low grade to an underground mine is very different to low grade to a conventional open pit. And it's true. We have some of the lowest grades in the world in Namibia. But they've been able to operate profitably, in Rossing's case, for more than 45 years without stop through all of the, uh, the dips and the peaks of the uranium sector in that time, including when uranium was $8 a pound. So, and the reason for that, if you look at a tango, yes, it's low grade, but it's open pit. It's a very low stripping ratio of only two. It outcrops its surface. The metallurgy is very, very straightforward. It's conventional acid heat leaching. Uh, we don't have to do any milling. We just simply crush it down to about the size that you put in your fish tank. Um, it's low acid consuming. The ore body is very homogenous, so it's simple and straightforward and massive. Now, the thing is you add all of those advantages up on top of the infrastructure, on top of the fact that it's in the jurisdiction of Namibia with a really um, favourable royalty regime with good fiscal, you end up with the economics. And the economics are what counts for a developer. And whether it's grade that does that or metallurgy that does that or stripping ratio that does that, I'd encourage investors to look at what is the end point 
of all of those factors. And in our case, they're robust economics that we expect to put us in a very good position to generate shareholder value into the next cycle. So, but so I want to keep going on this point. Is like, so what price do you guys need? What price are you indicating to the market that you need to move into product? We'll forget all the you know um, you know contracts that you that you want in place, the offtake agreements that you want in place. Just in terms of the price that's going to incentivize you guys to say, right, okay, we will now you know pull, pull press the button where it says go. Well, in the PFS, we've put sixty five dollars as a price assumption. And that generates what's kind of widely accepted as being a, uh, let's call it an incentive price. So that's 20%, in our case, 21% internal rate of return post-tax, uh, generates a post-tax NPV of 222 million US dollars. And this is a large scale mine with a long mine life and the capacity to expand later. So it's got some other attributes that are really important when it comes to those contracts. Now, we don't think that this market's going to stop at $65. And so that's where I think our leverage becomes really important. Not only do we have that mine life to deliver into a long-term bull market, which is what we're expecting, but also we can expand. And the um, way that the mine is designed at the moment is to give us the option of expanding from three and a half upwards, potentially up to 7.2 million pounds per annum, which is where we previously did our DFS. So we've got the, the leverage that comes from the potential to expand when we see the right prices and price signals. And we've also got the leverage in terms of the way that our NPV responds to increasing uranium prices. And at $75, that NPV goes from 222 million post-tax to approximately 350 million post-tax. And if you wanted to run scenarios above that, that's when it uh, really shows the value of that leverage and what it does for investors. It's kind of interesting to me when you, when you say, so, so 65 bucks is the, is the number that you're indicating in, in, the, in the DFS, right? So the same people who are saying Africa is low grade are the same people who are saying uranium's going to 200 bucks. So at 65 bucks, it's kind of a moot point, you know, <laughs> if, you know, they can't have both sides of that argument, right? Uh, okay, so I haven't really kind of picked that one up until you, you said it out loud there. Right, so your, your, your economics are, are good at 65, but your expectation is what? I mean, are, are, sorry, are you a, a $200 guy or would what, you, what you feel this more reasonable uh, number to put on this thing? Hard to say. Well, I'm, I look at you. it from the perspective of uh, where could you get long-term pricing as a stable baseline assumption for developing a project? And we've modelled all this up. You know, we've got, I think, what's well understood to be a very sophisticated understanding of the market. And when we apply some fairly reasonable, I wouldn't say sort of super optimistic, but some fairly reasonable assumptions about this market, we think that the incentive price will need to be at least... $80 a pound over the medium to long term to bring in enough uranium projects to be developed in order that this uh, supply can meet the demand. So we would say that's a reasonable baseline. And there are any number of demand factors or supply catalysts that could cause volatility above that. And I suppose that's the luxury that an investor's got uh, to think about uh, what they would do with their investment when it and if it gets to those sort of levels. But for us, 
we need to be able to plan into the longer term. And we see that as a baseline in terms of our expectations. Um, but the other point that I'd make, if I may, Matt, you know, we've got a couple of years before we need to start uh, production. And so we've got some time to watch this market. And I really think we're at a tremendously interesting dynamic inflection point in this nuclear industry and therefore this uranium market. So we'll be watching it very closely. And don't be surprised if when we get there, we're thinking that actually $80 isn't an acceptable starting point. That's something that's very much open for interpretation and, and I suppose open for us as a finding with someone who models their own sector. And we will be, uh, we will be pressing the go button at the uranium price that we think in all the circumstances maximises value for shareholders and other stakeholders. Understood. No, it wouldn't to... necessarily be $65. That's just, that's just a good uh, starting point in terms of the economics. Understood. Understood. Um, I, I, need to, I just want to talk about the, um, the Africa or Namibia, because you're in Namibia factor here again, is around per permitting. Okay. So you've got a whole bunch of uranium producers already in the country have been producing for, you know, 50 plus uh, years, L long, long, long time. Does that mean that's going to be a shoe in for you guys to get the permits that you need in place to get going? Because again, it, and I don't want this to be a North America versus Africa thing. We need all of the above, guys. So don't worry about cannibalizing each other. There are lots of other investments that people could be uh, looking to outside of uranium. So I think just, you know, calm down on the criticizing each other bit. Uranium's a good thesis, one I think a very, very strong thesis, and you know, we should we should get into it. And if you want to back a bunch of horses, that's great, that's great. But Athabasca has permitting issues in, in the sense that it just takes a little bit longer. I'm sure they'll get there, but history suggests it'll be a long time before they're in production. It's fine. We, at least we know where they kind of sit in the cycle. That's all good. We need them. Africa. Are you saying that you, well, you and, and others like there are other develop, development companies uh, in Namibia and, and nearby uh, Malawi and you know up in Niger? Is it easier and quicker for you guys to get the promise and therefore get into production? Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge advantage of being in Namibia. Now, the Namibians, they're not naive. And as I said before, they're capable of regulating well. So companies need to go into that with the right mindset, uh, rather than thinking they can enter a, a country like Namibia and uh, go roughshod or cut corners. And we've always done that. So we already have our environmental permits to build the mine. That can be the real stopping point in the first world. Uh, we've got the environmental permits for the linear infrastructure, and we're just in the process now of uh, basically getting the environmental permits for the infrastructure that's supplied to us by third parties, the, the power and the water. And Namibia's got a mining code that was introduced when they became independent in early 1990s. It's kind of a cross between the West Australian code and the Canadian code. It's been very well tested. Um, it's stable throughout that time. The Ministry of Mines and Energy are competent uh, and they process renewals and they do that. And we've never had any shenanigans that we've had to deal with. And that's not only myself as Bannerman, but, you know, as I said, I've, well, I've lived in Namibia for a long period of time and I've worked in Namibia since 2009, handling literally dozens of licenses uh, with a company I was involved in before. So the permitting is a distinct advantage. Uh, in our case, we've got what we uh, consider the optimum form of permitting for our project. 
and that is a mineral deposit retention license. It means that we're under no particular expenditure obligations. It means that we aren't, we don't have the axe hanging over our head to commence development by any particular date. And we can uh, transition that into a mining license when the time is right for us to start mining. And basically what we do is for the retention license, we just needed to satisfy the Ministry of Mines that uh, this mine had everything necessary for a mining license, except the price wasn't right, which was quite easy to do back then. We did that and now we just need to, when the price is right, show them the price is right, the economics work, and then we would expect that uh, mining license to be granted in a fairly expedited way. Well, who's funding this thing? Who's, who, who, where's the money going to come from for this? Because obviously we're seeing um, China ramping up. We, again, we've talked about this in, in, in the weekly energy show. You know, China ramping up. You know, um, the number of um, reactors that they're building, and they're going to need to feed that. We're seeing the U.S. is extending the life of. Um, a lot of their existing infrastructure. Um, Europe is a sort of mixed bag of, of uh, in terms of energy and their energy crisis is, is um, being caused by this kind of slight uncertainty in the marketplace. But, you know, you've got some very pro-uranium and others perhaps a bit uncertain at this time. But the bottom line is the demand is going up. You got a lot more people interested in this. We've seen the likes of Spurs, and we've seen the you know the, um, the you know, other entrants into the marketplace. But these are big numbers that are going to be required to get these companies, development companies like yourselves, into production. Where's the money come from? Is Africa still a China story, or are there new entrants and new options available to African stories? There's a range of options. So it's our job, I think, to focus on the most conventional financing plan, and that's a conventional financing with contracts that support a panel of bank or a club of bank uh, financiers. But I do believe that there's some options that are likely to produce a better result for shareholders. And one of those is some form of off-take financing. It could be Chinese, but then again, it could be any number of different groups. And whilst China might have uh, quite exceptional penetration into certain parts of Africa, it doesn't enjoy that privilege in Namibia. It has invested in Namibia, but Namibia is quite unique in the uranium world in that it faces China in the same way that it faces the US, in the same way that it faces Russia, in the same way that it faces the UK, Japan, South Korea, India, and so forth. So Namibia has exported uranium to all of those countries and since independence in 1991 has done a very good job of maintaining political and geopolitical neutrality throughout that. So uh, the possibility of, you know, pick an example, export credit finance out of the UK is a very real possibility, as would be offtake financing from China or India or South Korea or Russia or the Middle East or even Poland. And the fact that we've got the scale to support a nation-building nuclear fleet, as I mentioned, means that there's a number of different uh, potential avenues for financing that would be attractive from an equity holder's point of view. And look, while we're on China, if we just put things in perspective for a moment, their announcement at COP26 that they would be building 150 nuclear reactors over the next 15 years at a cost of 440 billion. 440 billion. They, those things are useless without uranium in them. Okay. So 
Yeah, our, um, under the PFS, our pre-production capital is $274 million. It's a very realistic outcome to think that we might achieve some fairly favourable financing terms without uh, selling the shop to China. Um, uh, export credit or potential offtake in return for a minority. And the thing is, if China's interested, then all of those other parties that I mentioned would also be interested. Because whilst China's got this voracious appetite, all of these other nations that are engaging in nation building nuclear construction and capital development, plus SMRs, they're going to have to find their uranium from somewhere as well. And they're not going to want to find that the shelves are bare because China's been on some huge shopping spree over the next five to 10 years. How's your bank account looking? You've got enough money for all of this? Take you through yeah, to that well, decision? We have, uh, we've just closed the quarter at 9.2 million Australian dollars. Uh, when we commenced the DFS back in uh, August, we expected it to have a total external cost of 4 million Australian dollars. Uh, it's still tracking on track for that. Um, anyone who's followed us for some time would know that we're very frugal with our money. And so we make it last a long time. And you only need to go back to our quarterly reports over any period of time and you'll see just how well we've made a small amount of cash last. So we don't, uh, we don't raise money just to make ourselves feel comfortable or to make sure that management have paid and so on. We're very strategic about the occasions when we have raised money. And we, uh, we think that that 9.2 million puts us in a very comfortable position. Okay, just, I just want to finish up with this because again, I think that's, investors look at these sorts of things, which is, uh, like I say, it's been fairly uh, erratic, volatile um, time since August in terms of the equities uh, out there. What is the event that's going to get things um, moving again? Because it's come off significantly since those highs um, at the end of last year. What, what's, what's, what's the market need to get going again? Of course, you have to give me a time frame in which to answer that. But in the short term, we need to remember that the uranium fundamentals have not changed. The market in general has obviously come off just in the last couple of weeks. And for many other commodities, the fundamentals uh, have been impacted by the same things that have spooked the equities market generally. That's not the case for uranium. Uh, in the very short term, I think what will be a pronounced impact on the sector will be once Sprott has uh, completed its acquisition of the uh, URNM, the North Shore ETF, uh, the Pure Play Uranium ETF. Um, I think uh, Sprott are probably a little bit distracted with that at the moment. It's obviously quite a lot of work for them to do. And once they've completed that acquisition, they'll be in a position to turn their mind back to marketing the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, uh, which we do know over the last six months can have quite a determinative effect on short-term investor sentiment. And we've got behind that as well, the fact that Sprott have now issued their SEC documentation to list the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust on the New York Stock Exchange. So I think we'll have a number of investors just watching to see how that process proceeds. Um, I don't think it's in the bag. There's still, it's, it's the first time someone's done one of these. So we'll need to watch and wait, but that's got the potential to add a lot of momentum to this sector as well. Um, so I'd say they're the two very short-term um, items. And then into the medium term, it's about allowing the market, the uranium um, 
supply and demand market to start catching up to fundamentals after the disruption of COVID. And I see that playing out over the course of this year. There's some interesting um, movement in the market at the end of the last year, people talking about not just submissions um, from the utilities, but actual contracts actually being signed. And obviously it's it's, it's hard to gauge these things because they, they don't have to announce anything in public. But do you, th- do you th- are you sensing, are you seeing, because I know you, you've got a, you know, a very experienced team on board and they're, they're in the market. Um, they, they, you know, you obviously with the WNA, you, you, you hear things, but are you seeing contracting starting to pick up or those sorts of conversations starting to pick up? Or is it just a case of still a case of feelers going out there, people trying to get a sense of, of, you know, what price sticks? Um, and, um, it'll take a little bit longer. I mean, we're, we're, how do you feel about contracting at the moment? Yeah, at the moment, the contracting pickup that we've seen is, in my opinion, it's more in the nature of catching up over what wasn't contracted during COVID. So we did see a, a slowdown in, let's call it, ordinary course contracting during COVID. It was just harder for everyone to do business. Uh, the utilities were distracted by some real pressing emergencies to do with uh, regulations around COVID and how they could continue operating nuclear plants and so on. Um, so, so far, it's been business as usual with a little bit of a catch-up. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not seeing and we're not hearing that there's any big lift in contracting at this stage that would then flow down to, certainly down to first-time producers. Uh, so we're biding our time on that. And I think any big um, push towards contracting uh, over the next six months, we'd be treating as a bonus. Right. And obviously for people, again, investors new to the uranium space or, or, or only, only joined recently, you know, we've talked about contracting. That's the important bit. That's what companies are looking for, you know, long-term certainty of a price. Um, but most people who need to will look at spot prices, spot price circa mid-40s, um, which is obviously significantly more than it ha- was before Sput came along, but it's still not enough. You talked about 65 today, possibly even 80. It's got a long way, a long ways to go. Um, again, what's it going to take to drive that spot price up? Because if we look at yeah, USX, Trade Tech, et cetera, they're not seeing that anytime soon. It's a relatively simple proposition at the moment in that we've got reasonable demand for spot that's getting filled in by one of two sources. One is the producers of uranium who only sell into the spot market. And that can either be directly because that's how they sell their uranium, or it can be because they've got off takers with traders who then effectively sell into the spot market or one of their other mechanisms that they've got for offlaying that product. And so the demand has been struggling over the last several years to, to absorb that direct selling. And that's why we've seen some uh, really improbable, unsustainable spot market uranium prices. Now, demand has picked up and that's been helped by Sput and Yellowcake as well. Um, A little bit of trading and a little bit of utilities who are realising that they do need to get closer to buying what they burn. Uh, but it still hasn't made an awful lot of impact. And the a lot of the material that was purchased by Sput was provided in the form of inventory. So there's a few pockets of utilities who felt that it was a chance to um, recapitalise. And uh, in many instances, it was traders who, um, you know, they were sitting on very good 
profits because they might have accumulated their material in the 20s and now they could sell it in the 40s. So the answer to that in the short term, Matt, lies in that inventory question. At some point, that inventory isn't going to be available anymore. And that's when demand will absolutely overwhelm those uh, primary suppliers of uranium into the spot market, the producers via themselves or the traders. And that's when we'll see uranium price really start to move well through the 50s. I can't give you a time frame on that because it's not particularly visible. And also uh, anyone, when we were speaking in August, if, uh, if you'd asked me how much uranium sput would have purchased, I would have given you a fraction of the more than 25 million pounds that they've purchased since then. Um, so it's really hard to give a timeframe on that, but that's a signal to watch for. And I think when we see uranium start to push through $50, based on what Spud have been telling the market, that's a good indicator that that mobile inventory has now thinned out. Okay, well, like, um, I just say, anyone, anyone um, listening or watching um, this, um, go to the Crux Investor app. We're going to talk about this, going to maybe um, help a little bit with some of the some of the misconceptions around numbers um, this week on the, on the on the supply side and on the demand side. And we're going to talk about um, inventory, mobile inventory as, as well. Lots 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 of things that enthusiasts might enjoy. So go there, Brown. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. Um, far too long. We must do it more regularly um, and uh, sharing your story. Um, and I, you know, hopefully we'll see you um, quite soon. Uh, what are the things, just leave me with this. What, what are the things that I, we need to look for that you're in control of that um, Bannerman Energy is going to be doing and delivering this year? So the main thing we're in control of is the DFS. So we will deliver the DFS by the end of the third quarter. That's the timing that we foreshadowed when we delivered the PFS and it's still on track with that. And um, the rest for us is business as usual. That's the that's the nice thing about being in Namibia. We, we don't plan on having any surprises and we certainly don't expect them. So look out for the DFS and um, the in the context and the background of that, I think the uranium market will be very interesting by then as well.